And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony, and I am here today to talk about The Rage of Innocence by the wonderful Kristen Henning. And I actually have Chris on here with me today, and I am so excited. This is a fantastic book. It was really hard to read, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit with our discussion. Um, it's an it's a little bit of a it's a it's a good book, but it's a little bit of an upsetting topic. Um, it's a very upsetting topic. So I'm going to go ahead and give Chris the floor so that she can introduce herself to you. Okay. Hi. Um, thank you so much, Harmony. I'm so happy to be here, and I am a professor of law at Georgetown Law School, um, but. Even more than that, I am the director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative. That means I take my law students into our local uh, courthouse and we represent children who have been charged with crimes in the District of Columbia. And I've actually been representing children for 26 years, uh, mostly in the nation's capital. Thank you so much for that introduction. And can you give our listeners just a brief summary? Because our hope here is that they haven't read the book and now they're going to go out and buy it. So if you could give them a brief summary of your book for us. Yes. So I wrote The Rage of Innocence um, growing, I should say, out of my experience as a, a defense attorney for children. And as I just said, I've been representing kids for 26 years. And in that entire 26 years, I have only represented four white children. Um, and if you're not familiar with the District of Columbia, you might be thinking that there are no white kids in Washington, D.C., or that white children don't commit crimes. But we know that neither one of those are true. You know, children by nature are impulsive and reactive and emotional. They are boundary uh, testers and um, risk takers, and they are heavily influenced by their peers. And so we see a natural uh, crime bump, if you will, during those adolescent years. In other words, you know, teenagers just act like teenagers and engage in behaviors that technically meet the elements of a crime. So why did I write this book? I wrote this book because we don't respond to white children who engage in these adolescent behaviors through the criminal legal system. Um, and so I really, it became just too hard to do this book for, I mean, excuse me, to do this work for as long as I have without wanting to know really why do these extreme racial disparities exist, not just in Washington, DC, but all over the country. I also wanted to know how were these uh, extreme disparities and in particular the criminalization 
of normal adolescent behaviors among black children. How was that impacting black children physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, developmentally, in all the ways that matter? And I then wanted to know, you know, if this criminalization of black youth isn't serving any use or isn't fair, isn't justified, then what do we do about it as a society? And so that's what this book does. It actually is a collection of stories about young people that I have represented over the 26 years, as well as um, some discussion and uh, retelling uh, of some of the high profile stories that we know about children, black children in particular, who have been over-policed. Um, I think about Tamir Rice, I think about um, Trayvon Martin. And even though Trayvon Martin wasn't killed by a police officer in a blue uniform, what we know is that the criminalization and the policing of black children occurs in many forms, uh, not just uh, by traditional law enforcement officers, but by all of us. So I talk about that. I talk about um, not only the stories, but I weave the stories together with research and data in very plain language so that it's accessible to anyone who wants to read. And I talk about, you know, the the research on um, adolescent development and what do we know about kids. I talk about the traumatic effects of policing on children of color. I talk about the history of um, race relations and particularly as it relates to the policing of black children. I talk about police in schools. There's so many topics there. Um, and you know, when I talk about the criminalization of adolescence, I'm talking about the criminalization of culture and play and music and um, all the things that we think of when we think about teenagers. And then at the end, I offer hope. I give ideas, thoughts, solutions um, to help us move forward. Thank you. Um, my first question is actually about the research process, because this is a book with pages on pages on pages of references, and you do bring in a lot of stories and anecdotes about your clients, but you do tie it into people that you haven't personally represented um, and who are big name finger figures like Emmett Till, like Trayvon Martin, and you also uh, talk about these legal systems in a broader context. And you talk about the ways that different municipalities police. So I guess I just wanted to know, A, how long did this take you? And then also, what was the maybe emotional process of researching this book? Because you're pretty frank throughout the, the book about your own discovery of how incredibly systemized this is. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, several questions like, you know, thinking about the research, it did take a long time to research the book. Um, and you're right, there are pages and pages of research citations, but they're all at the end. So if you're not, you know, if you have no desire to read my citations, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> they don't interfere with the with the story itself. Um, but I included the research because what we found as, a, as an attorney representing children, that this research is actually very useful in litigation. And so I wanted to include the research citations so that people, all, all, practitioners, judges, lawyers, um, 
probation officers, folks who need this can really understand it. Teachers, it's really good for them. So, but it did take a long time um, to write. I would say it was a it was a solid three hours. I mean, three years um, to write this book. I really knew that I wanted to write this book. Um, you know, quite some time ago. When I can't I hear you anymore. I'm sorry. Moment. Oh no. Okay, I can hear you now. I don't know what Where happened. Where did you lose me? Okay. Um, it, it took Where us, did you lose me? You were talking about how it took a solid three years to write this book, and then I think I lost you. Okay. So I knew I wanted to write this book for quite some time, in part because I kept having these sort of profound moments where I would realize just how important race was um, in the in the in the conversation and and in the work that I was doing with uh, with young people, and so I decided to um, really you know dig in with the stories. So I started with the stories, and I really wanted to understand why things were happening. Right. So I might have a child, a client of mine who was suffering from extreme trauma in the presence of police, who was afraid of the police. And I really wanted to understand what's happening psychologically with this child. And I came to find out that there is indeed a growing body of research explaining the extraordinary psychological trauma that Black and Latino youth in particular experience in contact with the police. So that's just an example of sort of how I would I would research the, the the book. I'd start with a story and I'd want to understand it, or I would think about how important um, play, recreation, and leisure are to me now as an adult, and how important that was for me as a child. And what does it mean when you're a black child and you can't go to the park, or you're going to get stopped by the police? You know for playing, you know, um, you know, games in the street in front of your house, like we did when we were kids in the summer. So I really wanted to understand that. So I did some research. Lo and behold, I found that there is indeed research on the developmental necessity of play and recreation and how um, harmful it is to the developmental trajectory to pre prevent children. Um, from playing. So those are just some examples of how I, I did the, the research. But I have to tell you, you ask about the emotional process. The emotional process really came from the stories. And I, like I said, I've been doing this for 26 years. I've walked alongside my clients as they lived through these experiences. And I, when I would write different chapters and different stories, I would have nightmares at night. I would cry. I was really taken aback by how incredibly painful it was to relive some of those stories. And I immediately said to myself, well, if this is as painful as it is for me, how much more painful and traumatic was it? Um, and maybe is it still for the young people that I represented? So it was a really eye-opening experience, even for me, who's been doing the work as long as I have. Um, and then the other piece of the emotional aspect is I include some of my own biographical pieces in the book. Um, it is really hard to be a black woman in America today and not 
have some sort of indirect or direct contact with the criminal legal system or with the policing system in one way or another, whether it is because some relative has been, you know, arrested or stopped or, you know, um, harassed in some way or another. And for me, you know, that was my brother, um, among others, cousins and the like, but especially my brother. Um, and so I tell the story also of my brother's involvement in the system. And I had no idea when I started writing the book how much, you know, um, I was still, you know, burying the pain from that experience. And so a lot of that came up for me. I think I want to share with you a little bit um, about my own emotional process reading this, because I think I went into this. I also come from a justice impacted family, but we're all white. And so I think I expected to go in being like, oh, this is the difference. This is why my family members are out of incarceration right now. You know, this is why their sentences were shorter. And um that did sort of come up, but I, I think that that was a way of me just kind of removing myself from this system. And I, I happen to work a lot with a lot of Black youth. And so reading this, one of, I found myself, I found it very difficult to read because you end up citing a lot of things that happen directly in New York City and some in some places very close to where I work. And so I'm reading this and now I'm seeing the faces of the kids that I work with every day. And that that I, like I just I can't imagine um, being a parent during this time and having to deal with that and having to worry about that because now I'm like holding this this anxiety about the the kids that I'm working with every day. Um, I guess sorry that was a brief little interlude, but um, I I would like to know a little bit if if there was anything that really shocked you while researching this because. I really felt shocked about some of the facts and figures that you talk about that are so close to where I live right now. Yes, I was <laughs> equally shocked by what I learned. I mean, thinking that I've been in the work for 26 years, I thought I understood. I thought I knew. Um, and I just learned so incredibly much. I mean, one of the most surprising things that I learned very early on in the process was that that evolution of adolescence, right? I, um, at my age, I have taken adolescence for granted, or that the three stages of development are childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Um, but in, in reading and writing for this book, I realized that adolescence is a relatively new phenomenon, and the word adolescence didn't even appear or take hold in America until like the 1950s or so. And what I learned was that before the Industrial Revolution, adolescence, or excuse me, development was seen in two stages, childhood and adulthood. And with the Industrial Revolution, there was a demand for higher skilled labor um, and more advanced degrees. And so white middle-class families began to pull their children in from the field or from the agricultural um, economy um, and allow them these extended periods of education, extended periods of skills development. Um, but what that meant also was that there was also an extended periods of play and recreation, things that we've been talking about, right? And that really was the creation of adolescence, really as a privilege. And from the very outset, adolescence was a privileged period 
for the middle class and for the white middle class. And so it's really interesting to think about adolescence along the racial dimension. And so as we sort of fast forward to contemporary society and we think about even now after, you know, um, education is mandatory, compulsory school attendance is mandatory, you know, at least till the age of 18 for most folks. And now that we have labor laws and so children as a general matter don't work um, until those late teen years um, that what we see is that there are other ways to exclude black youth in particular from the privilege of adolescence, right? Um, and one of the ways we ex exclude black youth from that privilege is through this criminalization, right? From the arrest and prosecution of those things that all of us did and were allowed to do and allowed to enjoy during our adolescent years. So that's one of the the statistics. I think another statistic, or, or one of the, excuse me, I should say, one of the surprises. I think another surprise for me was the evolution of school resource officers. Um, I always bought into, or I, I should say, I, I bought into the often repeated narrative that we have police in schools today because people, parents, teachers, lawmakers were afraid to send children back to school after the mass shooting in Columbine in 19, um, you know, uh, 98. But what I realized is that the first police in schools appeared in 1939 um, in Indianapolis in response to the earliest indication or earliest conversation about even the possibility of integrating schools. Fast forward to the civil rights era, um, to the 1960s, and you see that police and schools increased exponentially in response to what was happening during that era. Um, police were sent to schools under the guise of creating a meaningful or safe passage, um, you know, for creating a safe passage for black and brown students to be integrated in schools. But we know from the iconic photographs um, and from the historical record that far too often police in schools um, was an impediment to meaningful integration of, of schools. And so fast forward to the 1990s, we have so many police in schools by 1991, we have the National Association of School Resource Officers is already founded. That's a full, you know, seven, eight years before Columbine ever happened. Um, and so um, the federal cops in schools program is created in the mid 1990s. And that's the federal framework that funnels, I should say, funnels federal dollars into state and local school systems that would agree to hire police in schools. What's going on in the mid-1990s? That You talked about New York City, right? That is the heart of the super predator error in New York City. And what we see is that, you know, Black children are become the target of this war on crime. They are in this temporary moment of, 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 of increase, crime increase, we see that black children um, become the, the target and they get labeled as super predators. Even though that myth was quickly withdrawn within a year, the legacy lived on and the damage was done by that super predator myth. So um, by the time we get to 1998, um, indeed, um, we have an increase 
again, in police in schools, but where do those police officers get sent? They don't get sent to the Columbines of the world, the, the places where the suburbs where the mass shootings are occurring involving white male students, but they get sent to urban school districts where Black and Latino and other children of color are um, predominantly represented. And so that's an important legacy I, I learned in writing this book. Yeah, I want to touch a little bit on that. Uh, I didn't write this as one of my questions, but because you brought it up, there's so much great information in this book. It's like an encyclopedia of knowledge. Um, the super predator myth, I think for as I'm a millennial, right? So I was a child during the 90s. And I think, and we all just experienced this Donald Trump era. I think that it's hard for us to recognize the ways that um, policing and criminalization of Black youth went on across the aisle. And I feel like this book highlighted that a little bit for me because we're talking about, uh, I believe, Bush, Bush, the, the first Bush, right? Bush Sr. And we're talking about Bill Clinton during the 1990s. Is that correct? Yes, we're nodding. Okay. Yeah. So um, the the super predator myth, it was just, it, it, I guess it, it really highlighted to me the way that both of our no matter what uh, political party you're in, both of these parties seem to be united in reinforcing criminality and um, reinforcing laws that, uh, I guess, I, I don't know, I guess just like having a strong police front. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. I'm sorry, it's so ineloquent. So, right. Um the ways in which race, you know, persist or, or, or you know, the, the fear, right, um, persist across the aisle is, is, is what you're thinking about and definitely persist across, the, you know, the political aisle in some ways, to be quite frank, there were moments when it was persisting across the racial aisle um, um, and the like. And, and really, that is about the ways in which racial bias has always operated in our society. And it has an intense stronghold on people um, in America, especially as it relates to crime. Um, and so think back to really the very founding of our country and the ways in which you know black uh, folks were enslaved in our country. Um, and you know, think about error after error from the error of slavery to the error of lynching to the heir of you know civil rights to the heir of the you know alleged super predator and thinking about the ways in which we've always had to quote unquote justify the horrendous treatment of a particular people so in the era of slavery it was you know black folks you know were were lazy incompetent dangerous and needed to be regulated controlled and restrained in the lynching era, it was again that explicit narrative to justify the lynching of someone, you know, a beautiful boy as young as Emmett Till, 14 year old boy. Um, and you have to, you know, espouse a narrative that, you know, black boys were a danger to white women, right? Um, sexual threat, brute, thug. Um, and you see, um, I think the, the word thug appears in the 90s, right? In the 90s. And so in each and every one of these errors, there's an explicit um, narrative um, put forth 
to justify the degradation, um, uh, deprivation, oppression of a people. Now, over time, that becomes embedded in the American psyche as a um, as implicit bias, if you will. So we move from explicit to implicit bias. Um, and so I, I say to folks, think about it, right? If even though now today we don't go around, I mean, we still talk about black kids as being thugs, but we don't, we wouldn't lynch a child in quite the same way, though I would argue that, you know, police shootings in some ways are the contemporary lynching. But, you know, the point here is even as our explicit racialized and racist narrative or language has fallen away, um, it has been replaced by our own implicit biases. And our implicit biases impact all of us, even people within the same race. And so I say to folks, if you walk through a park and you see a group of black kids playing and laughing together, how many of you are afraid? How many of you are hesitant about walking through that park? And you have to ask yourself, why is that? And that is exactly how implicit racial bias works. And so you see, I think, a lot of that um, driving um, the political agenda. So I think about, you know, the Clinton era. You asked about the Clinton era. I mean, much of what was happening during the mid-1990s and the crime control. I talked about the, the federal uh, cops in schools framework. You know, that was very much, you know, during um, the, the, the Clinton era, right? Much of the 19 90s crime control legislation came out of that era. And that's very much a part of, you know, the people want to be safe and political leaders need, you know, for their constituents to know that they care about public safety. That is all done on the heels of the narratives, right, both explicit and implicit that were um, conflating um, blackness and criminality. Thank you. Uh, you did a much better job of, of summarizing that than I could. And I wanted our listeners to just hone in on that because I think too often uh, we think of racism as just being a Republican issue, but it's an, it's an everybody issue. Um, one of the things that really shocked me that you highlighted in the book was this idea of surveillance and Actually, I pulled out a little quote from it, so I'm going to go check my notes. But you talked about how it's legal in many places to surveil Black children, even if their information is not published to databases, um, for simply living in a certain neighborhood or for talking to people who have suspected criminal activity or for their social media activity, for um, posting certain lyrics or um, making a gang sign. And I know I'm only 28, so I remember being in middle school. Like, I remember us pretending to, like, throw gang signs at each other, like fake gang signs, which is a little bit racist, but, you know, middle school. So it's a... It's it was really shocking to me, and you wrote about New York specifically in that. So I'm just trying to find that part. Yeah, you talked about how um, five thousand five hundred school safety agents who work in New York school public, who work in New York City's public schools, have uh, discretion to monitor and exclude and add youth to New York's gang database. 
And that to me was so frightening because again, I'm working with kids in New York and I'm thinking, well, what if some of these kids, like what if their information is being published and I'm a librarian. So like we're pretty big on patron safety and, and, and keeping people's information um, to themselves and letting them have control over it. So I guess my first question is like, how is that legal? I know you talk about it in your book, but can you give a little bit of, brief, of a brief summary to, to people listening? How is that legal? And how, if we wanted to do something about that, how would we do something about that in our local municipalities? How are we going to fight to make sure that people can't, like that police can't just monitor kids that way? So yes, I was very, um, that was another piece that I was pretty surprised at. Um, the ways in which gang laws have been written in some states, some states like New York or California or Illinois, um, and uh, the ways in which, one, gangs are defined, right? Um, and they're defined in ways that are so broad, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, they can apply to fraternities and sororities and you know, groups of friends um, because they, they um, talk about gangs as a group of young people who uh, closely associate with one another and often wear similar clothes, have hand signals that you talked about, um, and engage in criminal behavior. Well, we've already talked about how young people, as a general matter, <laughs> um, uh, have a tendency to engage in behaviors that technically meet the elements of a criminal offense. So I say that only to say that the gang statutes, the gang definitions are quite overbroad. In furtherance of um, the efforts to regulate gangs is also um, legislation that allows for the creation of gang databases and the surveillance of, of young people um, in an effort to track, uh, to be preventive, if you will, um, to monitor young people who are suspected. And so indeed, the many of the gang legislation, particularly those adopted in the 80s and the 90s, were allowing for police officers to um, partner with, collaborate with police officers in schools um, to track young people, identify young people who wore certain colors to school, who drew, um, you know, certain signs on their notebooks. So you would see that. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, surveillance of social media, there, you know, the, the privacy laws don't protect us as much as I think folks might believe when we post publicly, you know, on social media. And moreover, uh, some police departments are known to create fake profiles and follow unsuspecting young people um, and, you know, track their social media that way. And so we see, you know, a fair amount of that. So you ask how it's legal. I mean, it's legal in part because gang legislation has allowed for some of it and then in part because we don't have the privacy protection on social media in the ways that I think people suspect that we do. Is there something that common citizens can do to like prevent that legislation if it's not up for vote? Like how do, as a lawyer, how would you recommend uh, just the common person tackle that issue, that, ta that issue of hyper surveillance? 
Yeah, I think, well, one, and specifically as it relates to, you know, um, gang, ba- uh, gang legislation, there has been some considerable pushback um, in, in, over the years in the overbroad uh, language. And so one of the things that I say to an average citizen is paying attention. I think these are some of the things that, you know, we take for granted. And so when I say pay attention, I'm saying pay attention um, and ask questions. Don't accept everything at face value in the media, to be quite frank. And I think we get, we as the general public, get our information about gang violence from the, um, from the newspaper, from news reports, or when there is some high profile criminal um, incident and it becomes over um, assigned, if you will, or over identified with gang violence when often it's not. So that's one thing, just asking questions, digging deeper, don't accept face value. Um, also, I think it's important for the public to recognize that the, the data you know, in their local jurisdiction, you can often look that up. You know, gang violence um, has gone down considerably over the years. Not only that, gang um, um, uh, membership has gone down considerably over the years. School reporting of gang presence at schools has gone down considerably over the years. So that's one thing. And so then given that, right, um, you know, having the public, you know, pay attention to um, the continued persistence of gang databases, um, uh, asking questions, um, you know, you can do a quick Google search. Does my city or does my state usually, you know, have a gang database? And um, you know, in that Google search, you can usually find what the racial disparities are in the population of young people who have been included in a gang database, right? You can partner with your local, um, often, you know, your um, ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, or criminal justice reform organizations that are really prevalent in pretty much all 50 states. If you're looking at a national organization, looking at the sentencing project and looking at, um, you know, social media surveillance, there's a number of, uh, or gang databases and sentencing. So there are a number of organizations, depending on where you live, that are doing this work and tracking this work. And I say track it that way so that you know when some legislation is, is, is pending or you can join a campaign um, to amend some legislation. And so I know that there's been effort in Illinois, um, uh, uh, New York, um, and some other states to actually call back or to reduce the actual names, um, scrub the names from the, um, the, the databases, the gang databases, for example. Um, and all of that ties to surveillance, right? Um, being aware of you know, what the surveillance policies are at your local school for your children. Are they, you know, looking at, you know, the social media for your kids? So it's just, it's a function of being aware more than anything. Thank you for making me aware. Um, That's something I'm definitely interested in looking at at the future. I want to move on a little bit. We've talked about this topic uh, already because it's the, I feel like it's the major theme of your book is this idea of society at large and particularly the legal system and policing not seeing Black children as children. Um, And for me, that really, this was the the big emotional moment for me was uh, the story that you gave of Jeremiah Hervey, who wasn't someone I think I was 
uh, aware of before reading this book. Um, do you want to give listeners just a brief summary of that story? Yes. Yeah, so Jeremiah Harvey was a nine-year-old boy who was in a bodega and and in 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 New York and um, Brooklyn, I, I I believe. And he walked into a you know bodega. His book bag happened to brush against the um, behind the rear end of a white woman. Um, the white woman turned around and she sees him walking past and proceeds to call the police to tell the police that she has been sexually harassed. Um, and this idea that you would turn around and you know you feel something on your, your behind and yes, you know we might be startled, but that you turn around and you see a child, right? And you see a black child and your automatic is assumption is that that was intentional and that not only was it intentional, but it was intentional for sexual gratification. We have to ask ourselves where that comes from. You know, dare I say, if she had turned around and seen a girl, she would have assumed it was an accident. Turned around and maybe seen, you know, um, you know a, a white child, she would have assumed that it was an accident, right? But to see a black male, she assumes that it's intentional. And the, the, the importance of like age is critical here. The implicit racial bias research shows that it is likely that the woman in the bodega and other people like her perceive young black boys as significantly older than they actually are. There is some disturbing research, but important research by Dr. Philip Atiba Goff and some of his colleagues finding that black, um, excuse me, finding that both civilians and police officers perceive or tend to perceive black boys as significantly older than they actually are. In fact, more than four and a half years older than they actually are. And so this is this idea, right, of us not seeing black children as children. So you turn around and you see a nine-year-old Jeremiah Harvey and you see, you know, a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old um, in your mind without subconsciously, right, without even realizing it. You turn around and you see, you show up at a park in Cleveland, Ohio, and you see a 12-year-old Tamir Rice, and he looks to be 16 or 17-year-old. Think about, um, you know, even uh, Eric, um, uh, oh, excuse me, even Mike Brown, right, in Ferguson, um, you know, Missouri. Think about how, you know, we think about an 18-year-old. For those of you who are listening and you have a child, you know that an 18-year-old is every bit of a child, right? But we want to adultify um, kids like, you know, Mike Brown. So Mike Brown is perceived, you know, to be four and a half years older than his 18 years. So this is this idea of, uh, of adultification. And so poor, you know, you know, I say poor, just sad that a nine-year-old Jeremiah Harvey you know, um, has to experience this idea that he's somehow a sexual predator before he even is aware of his own sexuality, right? 
Um, and then there were just really powerful stories um, or interviews with Jeremiah and his mother in which his mother and he are crying, like literally, you know, shedding tears, sobbing. Um, and his mother is explaining how, how she never in a million years guessed that she would have to teach her child at the age of nine about Emmett Till, right? Um, and how um, that, at, that at nine years old, he will experience these moments of discrimination, these moments of presumption. And, and what does it mean to be labeled as a sexual predator and a brute at the age of nine? There are so many aspects of the story that I want to dig into because there's there's just so much going on here with the way that we perceive children and Black children in particular. And I think one of the, I actually, I looked up Jeremiah, right? Because the story itself was shocking to me. And then I saw his face and he is a nine-year-old who looks like a nine-year-old, right? Like he is not tall for his age. I know a lot of nine-year-olds who look like they're 12 and he was not one of those kids. But as you're mentioning, right, it shouldn't matter. Like Tamir Rice, who didn't look like he was 12, right? It shouldn't matter what these children look like. So I guess um, there's there's so many things, right? There, there's the fact that this was a child who looked like a child who was perceived as being automatically sexual. And so we're getting into that hypersexualization aspect. And then there's this idea of just adultifying um, Black children and not being aware of the fact that children, regardless of race, right, uh, mature at different times and, like, appear differently. And we need to take other context cues to kind of figure out how old children are. And then there's the issue of context that's going on here. Um, I don't know if I can formulate that into a question, but do you have anything you'd like to add? Yes. I mean, you're, I mean, you nailed a lot of key points as you were speaking. I was thinking, you know, right? Like how, you know, one, do we overcome this adultification? And part of it is recognizing our own cultural biases. It's being aware that we often um, perceive Black children older. That's the start. It's an awareness, number one. Number two, it's the context clues. It's exactly right. I talk about this a little bit in, you know, um, in, in chapter 12, or at least I've talked about it in, in, in interviews, this idea that we know how children um, speak. You can, you can, you know, you know, pause, ask questions, right, before jumping to conclusions, before criminalizing, before using physical force, asking questions. And, and you can understand from the language that they use, the way they put together thoughts, um, gives you a lot of insight to how old they are. Part of it is slowing everything down. Um, uh, it's also paying attention. So this idea that somehow Tamir Rice looked older than he actually was, I mean, really, um, that's just a function of looking at his face. If you look at his face, he looked every bit, you know, of a child. Like he was a 12-year-old child in face. And it was the other aspect. They talked about him, you know, being taller and heavier and, you know, wearing, you know, an extra large jacket, that kind of thing. Those are physical, right? Like, you know, uh, manifestations. But look at the clothing. Also, look at look at context clues. Like he's in school. Not, not Tamir Rice was in school, but Tamir Rice was at a park. Um, and he was at a park right by a recreation center where kids hang out, right? So that's another clue, right? 
Um, he was also playing. He was playing with a toy gun. And even the description, you know, it's like pow, pow. Like, you know, it was like what kids play, um, uh, um, you know, in, in a park outside um, on a, you know, afternoon, that kind of thing. And then even, you know, Mike Brown, right, um, thinking about um, the adolescent brain um, and the ways in which, um, the ways in which, again, you know, his conversation, his language, you know, suggests potentially that he was emotional um, at the time in response to unfair treatment. What do we know about teenagers? You know, I've already said emotional, um, reactive, and also they're fairness fanatics. And he knew he was being targeted unfairly in that moment um, by, you know, Officer Wilson, who was telling him to get out of the street, right? Like, you know, you know, that kind of thing. So there are a lot of context clues that we um, that we can can look to, but more importantly, it starts with a cultural shift, right? Recognizing that we, as a community, tend to perceive Black youth as older. Okay, I want to switch uh, gears a little bit, I guess, or jump to another question, because you just mentioned context. And I guess I'm wondering how how the legal system, right, can... Actually, you know what? Here, let me let me back up. Let me switch context. I want I want I want to ask you about this question first. So we've talked a little bit about how adolescence is more forgivable if you are white in the eyes of the legal system, and you take on you you talk about the white clients that you have and the grace that you gave them, even though one of them um, talked about being a skinhead, for instance, right? Because they are children, and children are reactive and and prone to making mistakes. Um, And you also talk about a number of high-profile cases uh, that take place from from white white people, white young people, who are maybe even a little bit older than adolescents. And one of those cases that you mention is Brock Turner. Um, And I think one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because reading this, it, it stood out to me, because Brock Turner is such a contentious issue for so many people, right, is um, you you mentioned that a lot of attorneys who represent Black and um, Brown clients have talked about how they believe that their clients could have benefited from a judge like Persky. Is that how I say that? Persky, is that his name? Yes? Okay. And I guess I'm wondering here if you could elaborate a little bit about, and of course, how they wouldn't be treated by a judge like Persky, because there are other barriers to access to those clients um, getting a judge like Persky, right? That Persky may have treated them in the same way that he treated Turner. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the legal system and whether, whether you would advocate for different treatment in general for cases like sexual assault, even, um, across the board at the for for the legal system to be less punitive across the board when people are young, even if they are above eighteen. And it, yeah, I guess I'm just looking for clarity on that because it's such a big contentious issue. Absolutely. I mean, and it's worth noting that when the first juvenile court was founded back in Illinois um, in the late nineteenth um, century, that the idea was um, a rehabilitative approach to um, the criminal legal system. The idea, the progressive child savers, 
decided that or advocated for the removal of children from criminal courts, from criminal um, uh, institutions like prisons and jails, and to have specialized juvenile courts. So the very founding of the juvenile court was meant to be a rehabilitative approach. Well, we've already talked in this conversation about what happened in the 90s, and the 90s brought with it a law and order shift to juvenile courts across the country. So they did indeed become more punitive um, uh, in their responses to adolescent offending. Well, on the heels of that, moving us into the you know the 2000s and into the era that we are in now many developmental researchers and neurologists began to realize that um, that our approach to our responses to youth and to adolescent offenders was woefully um, in out of line with so woefully out of line with the, what we know about the adolescent brain. And so really in you know the last sort of 25, 30 years, there has been this wealth of empirical research demonstrating that the children are different, right? And that the brain is still evolving really up until the 25th year. So what does that mean? It means that our executive functioning our um, cognitive capacity is still evolving into the late teen years. But even after the, the, we began to understand right and wrong, and we have the capacity to make cognitive judgments, that we are still, adolescents are still impacted by what we call those psychosocial features of adolescence that last till the 25th birthday. So what in the world do I mean? That's the things that we've been talking about. Empirical research demonstrates that peer influence makes kids do, <laughs> you know, stupid things, even when cognitively they know the difference between right and wrong. Um, uh, their um, inability, their impulsivity and their inability to regulate their emotions causes them to do stupid things and take risks when their brain, their cognitive side of their brain recognizes, oh, I really shouldn't do that. But the, so these psychosocial features um, are moving faster than the brain um, is, right? Um, and so, so the reason why I gave that adolescent development a, um, uh, sort of tutorial is that the courts, including the Supreme Court of the United States, has finally acknowledged that this adolescent development research, this brain development research, has a direct and explicit impact on the law. So as a result, the Supreme Court has finally said that we cannot execute children. The death penalty is unlawful for um, people who committed crimes before their 18th birthday. They have said that life without the possibility of parole um, is unlawful for children. It's cruel and unusual punishment is actually the word that they use, you know, for people who committed crimes before their 18th birthday. Um, certainly in non-homicide cases and even in homicide cases, they have found that mandatory automatic life without parole sentences are cruel and unusual punishment. So um, we have seen that, um, you know, really 
since 2005 that the law um, has shifted to recognize adolescence as, as a mitigator, it's what we call a mitigation um, in, in, in criminal cases. So then you ask me about like Judge per Persky and Brock Turner. Well, here's the deal. The consistent, what we see across the country is that white youth get the benefit of this new adolescent development research. White youth get the benefit of all that we know about adolescent brain development. But somehow, some reason, the reason being our explicit and implicit racial biases lead us to believe that black children are somehow different and Latino children are somehow different. Um, and therefore, they don't deserve um, or you know, don't warrant the, the mitigating benefits. And that plays out in data across the country. When you think about death penalty, you know, uh, before it was outlawed, um, youth death penalty, um, youth sentences, severe sentences like life without the possibility of parole, the racial disparities are astronomical, astronomical, right? The, the data on, um, I think somewhere around like uh, so about 15 to 16% of, of youth in our country under the age of 18 are, um, are African-American children. But more than 51% of children who are transferred from juvenile court to be tried as an adult are, um, are, are black children. When you start talking about adults, uh, youth in adult court sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, those numbers go up and you, um, those racial disparities go up. And so there are states where 70 and 80% of all children who are sentenced to life without the possibility of parole are African-American children. Those kinds of racial disparities are just, you know, uh, just off the charts. Um, and so it, but it gives a foundation or evidence that, you know, black children aren't given this mitigation, mitigating benefit of adolescence. In fact, they are treated as if they are beyond redemption, which is one of the key things that the developmental researchers and the brain researchers found is that indeed adolescents are amenable to rehabilitation, but we exclude those, we exclude black youth from those opportunities. Thank you for clarifying that for me and for listeners in case it comes up while you're reading this wonderful book. Um, okay, so I think that my last question is about context, right? Because we've been we've had this conversation, right, about how context is so I, I guess we've kind of touched the surface about it. We haven't explicitly talked about it, but context in the legal system only seems to apply when we're talking about white youth and it is neglected when we're dealing with black youth, which might be why black youth get harsher sentences, right? So I guess for listeners, um, and you talk a little bit about this in the book, but can you talk about, well, actually, I'm going to quote you real quickly. So on page 151, you, you write, any parent, teacher, coach, or counselor who works with youth knows that teenagers can be emotional and irrational. They wait patiently for the child to calm down and then offer a firm and measured response. So how can the legal system in particular... There, we know that there are other ways that children get policed, like through the school system, like through citizens. Um, how can the legal system implement a firm and measured response that recognizes the context behind perceived crimes when it comes to children and particularly 
black and brown children. Yeah, well, I advocate for a, a few things. Um, one of which is I advocate for a, a reasonable black child standard. And I've written, you know, um, pleadings and um, uh, articles talking about the standard. And the, the, the idea is, or folks who practice in the criminal legal system know that criminal decisions or decisions in criminal cases are based on the reasonable person, whether or not a reasonable you know, person would um, feel free to walk away from the police, right? Whether or not a reasonable police officer would believe that someone was acting in a suspicious way. Um, and what the current reasonable person standard um, is based on is largely on a white male adult um, educated, reasonably well-off person. That is largely because the the cases that have been written and decided in our courts, both the Supreme Court and in state courts, um, have been authored or penned by a, a, a white male adult judge. And those um, cases often fail to take into account what it must be um, or what it must mean to be an African-American. So a police officer who walks up and says, I stopped um, uh, or searched or frisked this black male because he looked nervous or because he was running away from the police or um, you know, because he looked shifty and fidgety, um, fails to recognize that black males and females and you know, folks who are not you know, subscribing to, you know, binary gender labels that Black folks are reacting out of fear and trauma um, associated with the police. And so that nervousness, that flight, running away from the police, that fidgeting, all of that is what a reasonable Black person would do in the presence of the police. It's not evidence of some consciousness of guilt. It's not evidence of, you know, some nefarious intent. Um, or some threatening behavior, aggressive behavior, it's just fear. So that's just one tiny example of the ways in which the law um, can uh, shift and reform to account for what does it mean to be you know, a black person. I think another way in which the law has to shift is that we have to radically reduce the presence of police officers in the lives of all children. Um, and leave child rearing to parents and teachers and neighbors and, um, and the like. Um, and, but we especially need to reduce the footprint of police in black and brown children's lives because they've been so disproportionately overrepresented. So that's one law, um, another law reform uh, um, that can take place in city council um, or legislative bodies. And then the first example is a reform that can take place in um, the judicial system through courts um, and judges who are deciding these cases. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, is there anything else that you want to say before we wrap up? No, I just want to conclude by urging all listeners to remember that, you know, Black children are children too. Um, when we study the developmental research, it shows that um, teenagers act like teenagers all over the world, no matter what they look like, no matter what race, no matter what class, and that we need to give all 
children the opportunity to be children and all adolescents the opportunity to joy, enjoy that privilege of, of adolescence. And I hope when folks read The Rage of Innocence that they will see themselves in these stories, that they'll see themselves um, as teenagers doing silly things um, for which they never ended up in jail or seeing as they read their own children in these stories and realizing that they, you know, you would never call the police on your children. And so we want um, Black children to have those same um, uh, benefits as well. So um, I hope you enjoy. Yes, listeners, please go out and buy the book or get it from your local library because we really just skimmed the surface in this interview. Um, There's a lot there and it was very informative and there's just so much we could have talked about. Um, before we go and sign off, is there anything that you're working on or anything that you want to promote to listeners? How can they follow you? How can they follow your work or become involved? Yes, there are a couple of ways. I urge um, folks, you can go to rageofinnocence.com and find more about the book. But even beyond that, at Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic, Um, We have a lot of resources available to you. We've been running a year-long webinar series on um, race, adolescence, policing, and the criminalization of Black youth. And so if you, the best way to do it is just Google Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiatives Racial Justice Work, and you will find our webinar series uh, there and many other resources um, for those who are interested in in really bringing about change. Thank you. All right, I think that's all for now, folks. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBCPod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.